There were a couple of boys who were really good friends Monday through Saturday. But on Sunday, they, uh, they struggled to be friends because one of them was a Baptist and one of them was a Catholic. And of course, their traditions and the way that they worship was so different that they, you know, they kind of had conflict. And their parents caught on to this and they decided, well, look, let's let one of them go. We'll let the Baptist boy the first week go to the Catholic church with his buddy and to kind of see how things are done. And then the next week, we'll let the, the Catholic come to the Baptist church and see how things are done. And that way, they'll have a little bit more understanding of each other. And so they did that. And the first week, the Baptist boy joins the Catholic boy and they go to church and the uh, the Catholic boy kneels during part of the service, and the Baptist boy looks over and says, what does that mean? And the Catholic boy explains, you know, here's why we do this. And all throughout the Mass, every time that there was something that the Baptist boy didn't understand, he leaned over and said, what does that mean? And the Catholic boy would explain it. Well, the next week, they go to the Baptist church, and they walk in, and the Catholic boy is handed a, a bulletin. And he kind of looks at it, and he, he, he says, what does that mean to the Baptist boy? He says, well, this is kind of how we you know, give announcements and say what's going on in the service. And, oh, okay. So they go, and they sit down, and the, there's songs, and what does that mean? And so there's all this explaining of, of this tradition. And finally, the pastor gets up to start preaching, and he opens his Bible and lays it there. And the Catholic boy goes, what does that mean? And he says, well, you know, we teach from the Bible here, and oh, okay. And then finally, the the pastor takes his watch off, <laughs> sets it there right beside the pulpit. And the Catholic boy looks and says, "What does that mean?" The Baptist boy says, "That doesn't mean a doggone thing." <laughs> so I'll do my best to get us out of here for the Super Bowl. Maybe it's enough simply to say that we've got different traditions, don't we? And I don't mean necessarily between Catholics and Baptists, but between, between people. We have different ways of doing things. From brushing our teeth to celebrating birthdays, we have routines that we follow, whether we know it or not. You have routines. You have rituals. You have traditions that you follow. In fact, you followed them today. You got up and you knew exactly what order you were going to do, whatever it is that's in your morning routine. We are wired, hardwired by God to habits. And sometimes we will codify those habits to become routines or even rituals or even traditions. How would you feel, though, if on your birthday when you were being celebrated, that somebody came up and gave you a gift and said, here's your gift? You would not believe what that cost me. <laughs> You'd kind of think, well, that, that kind of sours it. You know, if you're really concerned about the cost, then don't bother. Don't bother giving me a gift if your heart's not in it. And it's the same with God. You can have your genuflections and incense or your old hymns and organs 
or modern choruses, your communion with a little wafer or a cup of wine. But if the heart's not in it, the church service becomes the lip service. Let's look together at the book of Mark, chapter 7. Book of Mark, chapter 7, Mark 7. I read some years ago in U.S. News and World Report, they revealed a poll that is as true today as it was back then, a few years back. And it said this, quote, Evangelicals, their distinctive faith aside, are acting more and more like the rest of us. They are both influencing and being influenced by the society around them. This is a group that is integrated into the mainstream. Evangelicals are just not that much different than the rest of America. U.S. News and World Report. Why is this? What can we do to live the life that we want to live and to not just give God lip service, but genuine heart in what we do? Well, let's begin here in Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? You know, when your mother taught you to wash your hands, she was concerned with hygiene. But this wasn't an issue of germs. This was an issue of ceremonial purity. And it actually was rooted in a command that the Lord gave. The Lord told the priests that before that they went in to offer the sacrifices, and certainly before they ate the, the sacrifices, they were to wash their hands. If you think about the tabernacle, remember the tabernacle the, that Moses set up in the wilderness, you walk into the tabernacle and the very first thing you saw was the big brazen altar, and then right behind the brazen altar was the, the laver or the, the big wash bowl where the priests would wash before they went into the, the holy place, which was right behind it. So washing was a, a legitimate command by God. But the Pharisees thought, if the, if the idea is good, if some is good, then more is better, and they broadened the command for the priest to wash to everybody should wash before every meal. But it had no biblical basis. It sort of degenerated into something on par with Scripture, but it wasn't on par with God's Word. You know, I noticed the last couple of times that I've been to the Western Wall in Jerusalem that they have a fountain there. It's easy to miss it, but when you walk to the, I notice the men's side because I don't go on the women's side, but on the men's side, 
uh, right before you walk down, there's a, uh, there's a little fountain right there, right next to the, the loner yarmulkes that they give you. And uh, the, the fountain has all these pitchers, and it's pitchers that, that have handles on both sides. And I watched uh, a, an Orthodox Jew, before he went down to the wall, he actually went up to the, to the, um, uh, to the fountain and turned it on and filled up this pitcher with, with two handles, turned the water off, and then he would wash his hands. He, like I said, it had handles on both sides. He would wash his hands holding the handle on this side then holding the handle on this side. So he'd wash the hands back and forth until the pitcher was empty. And then put the pitcher down and then just kind of, you know, shake the water off. This is a ritual washing before approaching the Western Wall. There's nowhere in the Bible, but it's in their tradition. And I thought about this passage, when I, when I thought about that, I thought about this passage because, you know, that's fine if they want to do that. But here the Pharisees are saying, you should do that. And why don't you do that? And that's where it crosses the line. The question was pretty simple. They asked in verse 5, why don't your disciples follow the tradition of the elders? And rather than address the question, Jesus' answer addresses their motive. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus quotes Bible to the Bible experts. If you quote Bible to Bible experts, you've got to be really careful about the way you do it. Jesus obviously was very careful. <laughs> he calls them hypocrites. Hypocrite is, the way Mark wrote it, hypocrite comes from a Greek word that refers to a stage actor that wore a mask. This is someone up front that isn't who they are portraying they are. Not only are they an actor, but they're an actor who wears a mask. Instead of drawing close to God through clean hands, they had drifted far from him with unclean hearts. Now, Christ isn't down on tradition per se. There's nothing wrong with tradition in and of itself. Christ observed traditions. He wore the, the dress of the day. He spoke the language of the day. He sang the songs of that culture. There's nothing wrong with tradition, per se. Tradition can be a good thing when it assists our worship of God, but when it replaces our worship of God or competes with it or or ranks higher in our mind, or even equal to the Scripture, that's all of a sudden when we've crossed the line. Jesus said, this people honors me. Notice their lips, but their heart is far away. Their lips, their heart. What they say, why they say it. The outside, the inside is a, is a contradiction, hence the hypocrisy. And so he gives them an example in verse 9. He doesn't just simply accuse them of being hypocrites. He gives them an example. 
of their hypocrisy. Verse 9, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many such many things such as that. So he's talking to Bible experts and he says, you know what you're really expert at? Twisting things. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. I read about a man who traveled or who averaged 60 miles an hour on a bicycle uh, while eating donuts. <laughs> now we're halfway there in, the, in this class. All you got to do now is ride your bicycle 60 miles an hour. You know how he did it? It was a, a contest. In fact, it's an annual uh, race called the Tour de Donut <laughs> in Illinois. A man, uh, a man named Roy Welling won this contest riding his bike 30 miles in an official 31 minutes. Now, I say official 31 minutes because it actually took him two hours to do it. But the rules of the contest are, for every donut you eat while you're riding, you can take five minutes off your time. <laughs> and the guy ate 18 donuts. So technically, he got a better time than all the others, but it was only through a loophole. Well, that's what Jesus, that's what's going on here in Jesus' example. Jesus says, honor your father and mother, and that doesn't just mean respect. It means you take care of them in their old age. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs> Do you know what you're saying by saying Amen. I almost said, and, and may all God's old people say, <laughs> but no one would have said anything. So, The Pharisees had a loophole where they could claim that any money that they had is Corban. Corban is a Hebrew word that means gift, and it means particularly a gift that's dedicated to God. And so if you go ahead and just dedicate all your money to God, if all that you have is Corbin, well, now you've got a loophole to where you don't have to help your parents out. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus says, you're setting aside the command of God for the tradition of men. You, you're experts at finding a way around obedience. That somehow the word of God doesn't apply to you. I've heard the same sort of excuse from seminary students and from uh, even pastors or those in ministry who don't give to the ministry because they feel like, hey, I am the ministry. 
I'm in the ministry, so I'll just keep the money rather than, than give. Now, even the priests in the Old Testament tithed. Jesus said, you don't disregard God's word by legal loopholes, but the Pharisees did it. And four times, Jesus says, in verse 7, 8, 9, and 13, he says, you invalidate God's word by your tradition. And notice how Jesus takes them to the scripture both times. He takes them to the scripture. First of all, he quotes Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips. Their heart is far away from me. And then he quotes Moses. He Honor your father and mother. He who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. Christ takes the Pharisees to the Bible. He says, this is your standard. It's not the tradition of men. It's the word of God. So let's take our eyes off the Pharisees just for a moment and put them squarely on ourselves. It's always easy when we read through the Gospels to be able to kind of shake our heads at the apostles because that often, honestly, they kind of seem as dumb as stumps until we think about the fact that we're kind of the same way. We look at the Pharisees and we think, man, what hypocrites. Jesus is absolutely right until we think about the fact that they're a lot like us. We're hypocrites. We really are. So here's a question. There's actually two questions that this text that I want us to think about. Um, and here's the first one. Ask yourself this question. When you evaluate the basis of your spiritual actions, do you find them in Scripture? When you evaluate the basis of your spiritual actions, do you find them in Scripture? They need to be in Scripture. They need to be in the Word of God. And if they're not, then they're not God's commands. When you evaluate the basis of your spiritual actions, why you do what you do, do you find them in Scripture, or are they simply tradition? I grew up in a tradition where the basic thought was that you come to church on Sunday morning, you love the church. You come to church on Sunday night, you love the pastor. You come to church on Wednesday night, you love the Lord. There was sort of a hierarchy there. The only true translation was the King James Version. I mean, it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, right? It's so easy with 2020 hindsight to shake our fingers at the Pharisees who shook their fingers at the disciples. But what about ourselves? What about bowing the head and closing the eyes when we pray? Where is that in the Bible? And yet we do it. We do it multiple times a day. But there's nothing in Scripture that says to do that. Have you ever thought about that? It's okay that we do it. But it's okay if you want to peek, too, sometimes. <laughs> Joining the church officially, you know, no, don't get me wrong, it's a fine tradition, but there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to officially join a church. I mean, in, in 
first century anyway, you were sort of stuck with the church you had. There wasn't any of this, you know, drive a car 45 minutes if you don't like the church that's around the corner. Around the corner is all you had. It was the church at Ephesus. It wasn't the first church of Ephesus and the second church and all that. You kind of had what you had. Um, and what about saying the Lord's Prayer together? I remember being at a funeral recently where the pastor, you know, was up front and he was sharing about, you know, uh, something in the message or whatever. But what I, what I remember about the about this funeral was the pastor said, "So and so, as the Lord taught us to pray, our Father." which art in heaven, hallowed, and, and it, it, people started looking around like, oh, we're supposed to. And by, by the time he was done, everybody was saying the Lord's Prayer. And, I, and I, everybody but me, I just kind of sat there and thought, I wonder, is that what Jesus meant? I really was just thinking, is this what Jesus meant when he said, taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer? that we would just sort of say it together in rote and in unison. It's a tradition. It's a tradition. In fact, <laughs> I read about a couple of churches that decided, a couple of small churches decided to join forces and be more effective together. Except the only problem was one of them, when they said the Lord's Prayer, said, forgive us our trespasses, and the other one said, forgive us our sins. How many grew up saying trespasses? How many grew up saying sins? Well, some say sins. And some say debts. So we got three traditions here. Sorry. Well, the local paper actually reported on this. And they said that, and they decided, well, we can't join. The, 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 the two congregations said, well, I'm not going to change the way I say the Lord's Prayer. So they, they decided not to join. And the local paper wrote this. I thought it was funny. They said, so one returns to their debts and the other to their trespasses. <laughs> See, the question is, when you evaluate the basis of your spiritual actions, do you find them in Scripture? Is it the Word of God or is it the tradition of men? And I think if we're honest, if we'll evaluate the basis of our spiritual actions, we'll find that the reason that we do a lot of times what we do is to find favor with men rather than favor with God. Now, Christ turns his attention from talking to the Pharisees. Now he broadens it a little bit and talks to the people. Look at verse 14. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And then verse 16 is in brackets. It may or may not be there in the original. We're not certain. But it says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 17. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, 
and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. See, the Pharisees fussed over washing hands lest they get contaminated by something they ate. But Jesus says the real contamination is not what goes in, but what comes out. And he doesn't mean what goes into the toilet. He means what comes out of the heart. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 15 from the message. He says, it's not what you swallow that pollutes you. It's what you vomit. That's the real pollution. See, the Pharisees were concerned with surface cleanliness. You know, it's an idea as unbiblical as cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible. You knew that, right? It's not in the Bible. But Christ is concerned with internal purity that one cannot gain by washing the outside. It's not what enters the body that defiles you. It's what exits the heart. It's not what enters the body that defiles you. It's what exits the heart. Look at verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Again, I like Peterson's paraphrase of verse 23. He says, all these are vomit from the heart. There is the source of your pollution. You see, it's what exits the, the heart, not what exits the body that defiles us. Jesus, quoting Isaiah, said, These people draw near with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Christ reminded us that a person's appearance and his behavior could be misleading. Um, there were the people in Jesus' day who looked impressive, but their heart was far from God. You see, there's a couple of ways that we can be, we can be guilty of hypocrisy. There's the, the obvious one of not doing what you say. That's what, that's what we see when we see hypocrites, typically. We'll think of a person as a hypocrite because they'll say one thing and they'll do another. That's pretty easy to spot. What's hard to spot, and maybe even, I don't want to say impossible, but very difficult to spot, is not, uh, not doing what you say, but not meaning what you do. That's the hypocrisy that Jesus is speaking of. And so here's a second question that I want to ask you to ask yourself. When you evaluate the motive of your heart, do you strive for purity inside as well as outside? When you evaluate the motive of your heart, do you strive for purity inside as well as outside? There's a reason you do what you do. It's for the Lord, or maybe it's for people, or maybe it's for yourself. But there is a reason. There's always a reason. When you evaluate the motive of your heart, 
Do you strive for purity inside as well as outside? You know, when you go to Israel today, you will see at some sites, like at Masada, like at Beersheba, a black line. It's about an inch tall that runs across the ruins. Like if you look at a wall that's been there for, you know, thousands of years, and you'll see a black line that runs across this wall. And what that black line represents is everything below that black line, what they're telling you is, is original. I mean, it's actually old. But everything above the black line, they've added onto it so that you kind of get a sense of what it looked like in a fuller, more complete sense. But the black line is there so that you know what's authentic and what's been built on. I remember after seeing that thinking, wouldn't it be nice if we had black lines in our lives? That there is a way that we can know when we look, everything below that is real. It's authentic. But everything above it, that's just for show. We don't have black lines. We can't see the black lines in other people's hearts. Uh, We just see the whole wall. We don't know where the black line is, what's real, what's not real. We don't know that in other people's lives. And it's really difficult to even know it in our own lives sometimes. Um, Sometimes you'll do something and you'll think, or maybe I should just say, should say me, sometimes I'll do something and I'll think, well, here's why I'm doing it. And then I'll get to thinking about it and I'll think, you know what? That is not at all why I'm doing that. I'm doing that to look good. Or I'm doing that to think better of myself. Or I'm doing that to hopefully gain somebody's acceptance. When in, when in reality, the Scripture gives us the command to perform before an audience of one, the Lord. That's a challenging job, isn't it? A famous quote, a well-known quote by Carl Rayner says this, the number one cause of atheism is Christians. Those who proclaim God with their mouths and deny him with their lifestyles is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. It's true. In fact, to our shame, the reason that we evangelicals have such a bad name in the United States uh, is not our message. Our message is a great one. It's good news. God loves you so much that he gave his son to die on the cross for your sins. And all you have to do is believe it and your sins are forgiven. That is great news. But the problem is that we will put stuff in front of that and we'll start pointing people's sins out and saying, well, you don't wash your hands. You don't wash your hands. Here's what you're not doing right. To where people look at us as Christians and say, Christians are simply those who say you need to keep rules. And that's not what it's about, is it? It's not about keeping rules. It's about a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. We show our love for God by obeying Him. But we don't have the responsibility of going around inspecting other people's fruit. Jews pray with their heads covered, we take off our hats. Their prayers are public and loud. Ours are very often private and subdued. 
They rock back and forth before the wall, and we'll sit and bow our head and close our eyes. Completely different traditions. Think about even our extemporaneous prayers. They'll read from a book. When they pray, they pray from a book. They'll read actual words. Those are their prayers. Us, we just wing it when we pray, don't we? Or do we? We even have our traditions in our extemporaneous prayers. I remember growing up as a, a boy, my grandfather would always pray in Spanish. And I'd never understood that um, because I didn't speak Spanish. And yet I can remember what he prayed. Gracias a Dios para elementos. Amen. That was it. That was the prayer. And I, I know what it means now, but back then I had no clue. But I could repeat it. I could pray right along with Granddad, even though I had zero clue what he was saying. When my parents would tuck me in at night, I had a prayer that was very simple. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. That was my prayer every night. Anybody else pray that prayer? Afterwards, if you want to come up here, we can all say it together. <laughs> and I bet I can say it faster than anybody. <laughs> now let me down and say, pray the Lord, someone to give you before we ready. Amen. That was how I prayed when I was a kid, going to bed. My heart wasn't in it, but I checked the prayer box. Now, we'd like to think we're beyond that now, wouldn't we? I remember once at dinner... After praying, I opened my eyes to just see one of my daughters just staring at me. She said, do you know you pray the same thing every time? So the next night, without any announcement, I prayed from the heart. You changed it, she said. from the mouths of babes. It's really healthy to evaluate the motive of your heart. I think we all strive for purity on the outside because that's what people see. That's social media. That's Facebook and Instagram. That's the Christmas cards that, that we send people. Wouldn't it be great just once if we'd send a Christmas card that showed everybody had just rolled out of bed? This, you know, Merry Christmas from the real Styles home. <laughs> but we don't. I mean, we get everything's, it's not, it's not, it, it, it's real, but it is, it's a moment in time that doesn't represent all of reality. The battleground of the spiritual life is won or lost in the heart, in the mind, in the motives, because any sin, as Jesus says, it comes from the heart. From within, he says in verse 21, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. You see yourself in that list at all? I sure do. That comes from the heart, Jesus said. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. 
Jesus refused to accept any religious activity that was not an expression of character. See, our, our problem isn't tradition as much as it is motivation. What's the motive? Why do you do what you're doing? Because if our religious activity doesn't express our heart, that's when it becomes hypocrisy. It's like Judas's kiss. I mean, there couldn't have been any more in uh, lack of genuine act given to our Savior than Judas's kiss. But that goes right back to Isaiah's words. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The battleground of the spiritual life is won or lost in your heart. This is why the New Testament is so adamant about the renewal of the mind. This is why we need to have a regular time with the Savior in the Scriptures, not as a legalistic box to check, but so that our relationship with Him can grow and deepen and that our mind can be washed of all of this list of things that Jesus mentioned, that our heart can be renewed, and that more and more we do what we do from a heart that wants to please and love God rather than from a heart that simply wants to impress people. You know, the, the, the Rainer quote that I, I mentioned, the number one cause of atheism is Christians. But you know what is also true? The number one cause of conversion is Christians. Those people who are genuine. And we all are in moments, aren't we? We want those moments to be more and more. If you think about the most impactful people that you have had in your life, the, the Christians who have most impacted you, it probably hasn't been their knowledge. It's been their character. The people who have influenced you the most, and just think about one or two of them, who have really impacted your life. What has it been about them? It's been their character. I can answer for you. I know it has, because that's what it's been in my life. Not their perfection, but you can even be a godly sinner. That sounds funny to say. In that you, you confess, and you apologize, and you, you do it right. That's who we want to be. The people that we admire, their actions flow from their character. And all of us, in fact, strive to be that kind of a person. So these two questions, let me just ask, ask you these questions again. And I hope that you'll genuinely take them to heart. When you evaluate the basis of your spiritual actions, do you find them in Scripture? Or is it simply tradition? And second, when you evaluate the motive of your heart, do you strive for purity inside as well as outside? Why are you doing what you're doing? Is it for show or is it for the Savior? In Psalm 19, verse 14, David prayed these words. Psalm 19, 14, he says, Let the words of my mouth... And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. The words of my mouth, that's my lips, and the meditation of my heart, that's the inside. May the outside and the inside be pleasing, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, 
O Lord. Say that with me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Isn't that a great prayer? That is a great prayer. Well, let's do what we do when we pray in our tradition, bow our heads, close our eyes, and I'll even pray in Jesus' name, though that's not something that the Bible tells us to do, at least in that way. But let's close in prayer. Our Father, it's so difficult to be able to approach you with pure motives. Because honestly, we could back up and trace why we do what we do. And so often, so often, it's rooted in a motive that is less than Christ-like. Thank you so much that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection have given us what we could never give ourselves through a life of good deeds, and that is righteousness a standard of righteousness that is as holy as Jesus himself. Thank you for this gift. Thank you that we can boldly come before the throne of grace and request your mercy in our time of need. Help us, Lord, as we try to apply David's prayer that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing, be acceptable in your sight, Lord. As we go through the week, just give us an evalu- evaluative, uh, evaluating mind to be able to discern why we're doing what we're doing. And if for some reason we catch ourselves in a moment of hypocrisy or a moment of double standard, that we would either confess that to other people or that we would certainly confess it to you, and that you would renew our mind and help us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.